Hey, hi, uh, I am Richard Donner, but you can call me Dick, and you're listening to Superman Movie Minute? Is that right? Did I do it right? another thrill-packed episode of Superman 3 Movie Minute, the show that scrutinizes, analyzes, and you'll believe a man can fly this 1983 Superman 3 five minutes at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, I'm one of your hosts, Chris Franklin, and joining me as always on this journey through time and space is... Rob Kelly, sitting by the potato salad. <laughs> you better watch it. I think it might be rancid. <laughs> yeah, it does, it's, I, I don't like potato salads. I don't know why I'm standing here, but, uh, but anyway, I'm here. <laughs> been sitting out all night uh so yes we are at the uh, smallville high reunion rob so i think now would be a good time to check in with one of the locals don't you i think so <laughs> joining us to discuss minutes 25 through 30 is a man more accustomed to covering a different action comic star these days please join us in welcoming our friend and the host of prairie justice a greg sanders vigilante podcast mr gord tolton hey gord well howdy and we're standing by here at the turbo refinery waiting for somebody to come along and put out this fire <laughs> <laughs> Somebody might drop a lake on you. You better better be careful, right? And so, well, if you could find a lake in August in Alberta, well, you're doing well. <laughs> so, Gord, as, as I said earlier uh, on Prairie Justice, you usually talk about another hero who had a long run in action comics, along Superman, and uh, that would be the Vigilante, correct? Yes, because they usually save the best for last in that comic. <laughs> they let Superman do the warm up. That's right. He was the opening act, right? Yeah. <laughs> I thought Congorilla was the the big the big draw of action comics. Well, probably that's just for sales, though. Okay, all right. <laughs> put him on a cover; it'll sell books, right? You know, mm-hmm. put, a, put a gorilla on the cover, right? <laughs> but uh, you know, I've heard a rumor that you happen to live in an area that has very close connections to Superman Three as well, right? And Superman One. Ooh, nice. So uh, I this could be a tale of two Smallvilles. I actually do live very, very close to where the first one was filmed. Uh, I live in a town called Coldale near Lethbridge, Alberta, if anybody wants to point that on a map. And that is about oh, 20 minutes away from a little town called Barron's. And Barron's was the site of Smallville in the first movie. Mm, and okay. it is also not very far from where Blackie is, where the Kent Farm, which is also not far from where Superman 3 is being filmed. And also a, probably about an hour and a half away from where the uh, the burial of Pa Kent was as well. And by the way, the burial of Pa Kent happened at a place called Bainon, Alberta, which to make the connection to another upcoming podcast is on the Rosebud River. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, the wintertime we sled down that hill. Thanks for the plug, Gord. <laughs> Not at all. Was that plain enough? I have to listen to the end of the movie to find out what I'm talking about. <laughs> Spoiler alert, Bork Gord. Jeez, come on. <laughs> In this area, is it like a local famous thing that these movies were shot there? I'm, there's like T-shirts or like a store that sells stuff or like a plaque. Like some towns, when they're kind of small and they have a movie shot there, like they really dine out on it. In perpetuity. Uh, oh, is that what goes much, on up there? Very much so. 
Uh, in fact, uh, High River is also not very far away from another town you may have heard of called Vulcan. Not a planet, a town. And that <laughs> town has actually built a Starship Enterprise at the entrance to its town. See, now that's and what I'm talking about. There you tourism, go. Its tourism center is uh, basically built like the space station on the Trouble with Tribbles. Wow. Uh, they the really went all in. The station was uh, not, not, not Steep Space Nine, but uh, you know gotcha. the one I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. So, gotcha. you know, the, so the town of Vulcan, even though it was named actually for, well, the god of fire due to prairie fires and uh, being a very large wheat growing center, at one time had nine green elevators, which uh, we'll, we'll talk about elevators later when we get into High River. But uh, Vulcan has remade itself um, just for Star Trek, and it has had uh, conventions there. Uh, shortly before his passing, Mr. Nimoy was there, and they had a parade in his honor. And they've had, they've had several conventions about once a year when we're not having COVID. People do come down from Calgary, you know, dressed as Klingons and red shirts and such. And Southern Alberta does have kind of a long history going back to, well, I don't know, probably the First World War, uh, probably because of its, its very long summers. And so it's it's been the home to a lot of productions um, around High River. We've had The Revenant. It has been the home to... Oh, let's see, The Unforgiven, Open Range, a lot of Westerns, of course. And there are, I have a lot of friends in the stunt industry around Calgary, uh, people who have their own six guns, and uh, all they have to do is they are have gun will travel. And also we have a, quite a few Indigenous uh, people in southern Alberta as well, and a number of them have, have uh, grown up as very proficient horsemen. So when you need... Uh, you know, a Cowboys and Indians story, well, the, the, we have the Cowboys and the Indians, and they can show up. And I have a number of friends in the industry on both sides of that divide. Wow. So was this this was a going concern when Superman 3 filmed there? There had already been several other pretty famous productions that had filmed there before that? Well, yes. The Silver Streak about five years before that had been there with Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. And I'm not sure Richard Pryor ever left because um, I seem to think he's he thinks he's acting in Silver Streak when he's in here. And when they're at the High River train station, and that's the large stand, sandstone building that you can see, that station had also been used in uh, Silver Streak as well. Oh, wow. Okay. And I, 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 you sent us a link a while back. There's, there's a museum there that has uh, props and... Uh, mementos from some of these films and i there was one thing that i like i I might have to make a pilgrimage there one of these days could you tell us what that what the big thing is from superman 3 you guys have on display there there's there's kind of a backstory to that and i don't know if you heard about that about seven years ago um we had a very very bad rainstorm in southern alberta and a very very large part of the river valleys and a high river was especially hit very hard and that museum lost 80% of its artifacts. Ooh. And it was, you know, very tragic of the many things that they lost. So, you know, they were faced with getting the museum back open that summer. What do we do? And somebody said, well, let's make a scramble and let's uh, do something different. Rather than just talking about the local history and hoping the tourists like that, let's talk about the movie productions that came through there. So, as I said, you know, there have been things like The Revenant and Unforgiven, and, of course, Superman 3 was a very, very big part of High River. Even in the, in the wintertime, Fargo came here because they found it too cold to, uh, to shoot in Minnesota, so they came to, uh, they came to Canada where it was less cold. <laughs> 
So a lot of those in the first and second seasons where you see them going down frozen roads, well, I, I know all of those frozen roads because I was usually driving past a lot of the, the productions at the time. Wow. So anyway, to get back to the museum, um, they decided to get another artifacts together. And I think somebody had donated that cape. Um, and I can't remember whether it was donated to a private citizen or whether it was in the museum's collection. I don't think it was in the museum's collection at that time. I believe it is now. Uh, but yes, they had Christopher's cape. Anyway, this was a very, very uh, successful exhibit. And it really kind of helped the museum get back on its toes after that devastating flood. And you can see even that museum in the uh, through Superman 3. Uh, you'll see a sandstone building. It is a former station that was along the Canadian Pacific Railway on the branch line that used to run from a place called Fort McLeod down to Calgary, or up to Calgary, rather. Oh, gotcha. So I understand that Calgary, like, subs in for Metropolis, uh, like, in the opening sequence. Is that correct? Oh, it's so much fun. When I first see uh, Gus go into that building for his training to become the greatest computer genius in the world, I know that building. It's right on McLeod Trail, <laughs> and you see it whenever you're going in and out of the downtown of Calgary. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, yeah, well, Calgary's a... Uh, you know, if we're major, major metropolitan center, it's a long ways away from its cow town roots. And even though it likes to once a year put on its howdy doody costumes and pretend to be Calgary Stampede, but pretty much it's a, a very, very modern city along the lines of Denver or Houston. Uh, it's hmm. an oil center. There's a lot of head office work around there. And it's very multicultural in the city. People sometimes think of Alberta and think it's very white. Well, it's not. There's people from all over the world live around there. So it subs in as Metropolis very well. And you could do that, uh, that movie even more today because it's funny when I look at that movie and you can see the Calgary Tower through it. Well, you can hardly see the Calgary Tower now because of all the glass buildings that have been built around it and now even surpass its height. So there could be all sorts of new mayhem in downtown Metropolis, like the opening sequence, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> High River also has a, a number of people that came from there, some famous people. The Prime Minister of Canada in 1979, a man by the name of Joe Clark, he was uh, sort of an opposition leader to the elder Trudeau. Uh, he was born and raised in High River, where his father was a newspaper editor on a weekly newspaper that still operates, the High River Herald. There's another man you may have heard of was born in, well, he wasn't born. He was actually born in Britain, but he was raised in High River. Uh, his name was Byrne. John Byrne? Yeah, John Byrne. Have you ever heard of that guy? Uh, it seems like I've maybe heard of him once or twice. I don't know. Does he yeah. have any connection to Superman? I'm not familiar. Uh, a little bit, yeah. I think you can make that connection. Michael Bailey, get your yarn out now. And you can start putting tacks into the wall of how you can put High River to uh, Superman and John Byrne. So do you, were you, uh, did you live in the area when the movie was, when Superman 3 was filmed? And, uh, do yeah. You Remember any of that, all the hoopla over it? I remember it mostly from press because it was a, uh, the filming occurred in August of 1982. Well, there's a thing in, uh, that happens around August if you live in southern Alberta on a farm, and it's called Harvest, and you ain't getting anywhere to go to any movie shoots. And I also missed the movie shoot from Superman 1, which was much closer, also due to Harvest. And that's why they come at that time of the year because that's when the grain is cutting. And they want to get all of those uh, those images, you know, of combines going across golden wheat fields and running over kids that happen to run over, have happened to fall into uh, as they wander away from picnics. Right. <laughs> That's 
spoiler warnings <laughs> for another segment. <laughs> so did you, uh, was there a big deal when the movie premiered? Did you guys have a, like a local big premiere or like one in Calgary or high river or any of the, I believe there was a premiere in Calgary. The mayor at that time was a man named Ralph Klein. And you will also see for lack of a better word, his bar in this movie, that's uh, a spoiler alert for a future scene. Mm. And which a man has a very bad uh, five o'clock shadow when he's shooting peanuts around a bar. And I wouldn't doubt, I, I've looked in that movie very much times to see if he was standing around there, but he was mayor at the time, and I'm sure he wasn't far away from it. So I guess uh, harvest time, we, we, when, you know, when I was a kid, it was, I didn't live on a farm, but we, uh, I lived in a big burly area, and we used to have like burly days, you know, when, when the tobacco would come in and everything. And, and, uh, so that kind of like people, kids would get out of school, you know, to go work on the farm. Uh, you know, there were all these like fellow students that were missing for like about a month. Uh, and you'd like be like, where, where is everybody? Oh, they're, you know, their parents pulled them out to, to work on the farm. So I kind of get that. It's not that way here now, but cause that kind of, you know, all kind of, uh, you know, because tobacco was kind of, you know, fell out of favor. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I, I kind of get that in a, in a local sense as well. So. I do remember at a point uh, one Sunday morning, I went to uh, a restaurant with some friends. Uh, this was in a town a little further away. And there was a Calgary Sun newspaper. Calgary Sun's kind of the morning tabloid. And they had a great big picture of uh, Christopher Reeve in his costume. Uh, you know, the Sun reporters had been down there. And they were covering this quite well. The, the, the media was all over this. They just loved it. This was the biggest thing that had ever hit. And um, I remember the, one of the, the two girls that I was with, uh, they weren't paying attention to me. They were just drooling over Christopher Reeve in the Calgary Sun. <laughs> sounds uh, like your mom, Chris. Yeah, it sounds like my mom. Yeah, my mom was too. <laughs> it wouldn't be surprised me if my mom said, "Hey, guess where we're going this summer for vacation? Calgary." <laughs> so first, when you and Cindy come up to see this cape, and of course, uh, Cindy will want to see my Pioneer Village. Yes, she will. Uh, we'll have to make the pilgrimage to Vulcan and Barrens and all of these sites. Yes, we should do that. That sounds awesome. I'm, I'm down. <laughs> we'll swing by and pick Rob up. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so you guys want to jump into our segment? Uh, we uh, actually we, like begin at uh, minute twenty five, and uh, we start at the uh, well. Where are we at, Gord? Where Where's this building we're at? The where the Smallville High class reunion is taking place. This is a uh, building that's still used as a school. It's the uh, it goes back to 1906, the brick part that you're seeing. But today, there's a very, very large uh, part back in it, and it's the original High River Public School. And today, it's, it's called Spitzy Public School. And Spitzy is an indigenous name that is actually the original name of High River, and it means high woods as the, as it goes through, like high trees. Oh, okay. Well, we start there with uh, Lana and Clark at the class reunion, and we end in the office of Rob Ross Webster, who is uh, wondering about where his missing $85,000 has gone to. Uh, so as our minute starts out, uh, Clark starts to tell Lana he hasn't danced in a long time. And I don't know about you guys. I can't tell. Like, can you? I mean. He hasn't danced ever. <laughs> when, when I watch this scene of him dancing where he is absurdly bad at dancing, I mean, he's worse than, than I am, which is saying something. 
is is he playing a part at that point? Because he's really not that uncoordinated because he's Superman. So he is just really playing up that Clark is a giant dork. Is that the idea? And if so, it, I don't know. It feels weird to me that, I mean, I heard that once years ago, many years ago, where they said that like Clark Kent is Superman's critique of humans. And I feel like that's almost what it is, where it's like, he's so overdoing it. And I know that part of it, it's that Christopher Reeve just likes broad physical comedy, but it, I don't know. It, like it just makes Clark, it, it makes Superman as Clark look ridiculous that he, is that much of a dork when he's dancing? I don't know. I don't know. And he's oblivious that Lana is not even joining him. I'm told to do the slow part. I don't know. Am I overthinking this? Is this the direction he's getting? I, well, that's it's a good point. We don't know. That might but that that certainly certainly seems like up Richard Lester's alley. Yeah, it's it's you know probably with Lester, it's go broad, man, go real broad. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> Richard Lester, you know, seemed to think he was in a Laurel and Hardy movie at some points. So. <laughs> yeah, and and Lana, the look she's giving, and Ed O'Toole's Lana is giving him is, uh, you wow, you weren't this much of a dork when I knew you in high school, basically, mm-hmm. you know. But but then he like you know as soon as Earth Angel starts up, he gets really smooth, you know. I mean, he smooths out. I mean, he goes from being you know just Jerry Lewis on a dance floor almost to uh, really being super charming, and you know the fact that he's Christopher Reeve. Uh, you know, comes through and then Lana is just practically swooning, uh, you know, as they dance and and talk. And she even like rests her head on his shoulder there briefly. And, you, you know, me and Rob were talking about this in the last segment. You really buy this rekindled romance, despite the fact that Clark almost just totally sabotaged it with that stupid dance move when he first went on the floor. <laughs> That's it's when I see him do that dance, I, that makes me think that it's like that he's still not quite comfortable being Clark Kent and he's still kind of playing it up sometimes. And then he sort of chills out a little and he's like, oh, OK, I can be a little more genuine. I don't need to play it up that hard, you know, because like he sees that Lana just kind of wants to just talk to him and then he kind of chills out and is is charming. And so that's I almost feel like that's he forgets himself. A little bit, and when he's doing something that ridiculous, but you're right; it, it might have been just Richard Lester telling him to go big, go big, Chris, go get bigger, bigger, bigger. Yeah, it sort of puts you back in the '90s when white people realized that rap might be cool, and they tried to start doing it. <laughs> and that dancing is sort of a a person that maybe is not of that age that really doesn't know how to dance to that music, how they think they should do it. Like your dad, like my dad, walking up to me and thinking he's Elvis Presley or something when he actually grew up with, I don't know, Glenn Miller. You know, you're right, though, Rob. I think after this, I don't think Clark is this dorky again throughout the movie. No, right. He's he's more genuine with Lana throughout the rest of the movie, which is, again, that goes back to uh, that they have a very charming relationship in this movie. It's probably, for me, the best part of this movie is their their, uh, interplay. And he apparently can't hear key changes when the music shifts. (laughs) (laughs) True. Oh, we do see Brad. Mark, you're in a slump. Yeah, that's right. You'll be great again. Uh, <laughs> uh, Brad uses the uh, beer sign uh, language uh, for another drink, and I gotta say, uh, Gavin O'Hara, he he is a uh, he plays a good drunk. I mean, he looks. They, I don't know if it's like I don't know what they've done to make him that way, or he just can take on that look. But he looks like he is sloshed. I mean, he. 
<laughs> and we see him that way multiple times throughout this movie. So whoever cast him in this film, he they're like, you know, and I'm not making aspersions against the actor. I'm sure he was just acting, but he can really pull that look off. So, <laughs> yeah, he's got that slightly heavy lidded look like he is partly out, out to lunch. Yeah, he's a he's a and the hair is a little the hair is like in place, but then it's also disheveled. Kind of. So, uh, yeah, no, he's a convincing drunk, that uh, that Brad. Rob, what is this actor's pedigree? I don't really know him from anything else. Do you, are you aware? Yeah, well, we covered him in the in the previous episode where his big credit uh, is that he played Chuck Cunningham on Happy Days. That was his, that's his most famous credit. That, he, he's, he continues to work. Uh, he's in kind of smaller projects, but he's he's gone on. But I I think, Chris, was that his biggest credit? I don't remember if we yeah, found anything that else. that Willow, probably. He was, Willow, he had, that's right. He's he in Willow. a pretty big yeah. part oh, in Willow. Oh, Willow, okay. Yeah, Hard to believe big. he could be forgotten from his impact role on Happy Days. <laughs> the family forgot him, you know? So. Man, yeah. well, from whatever foreign war he was killed off in. <laughs> He was, uh, he was, I think he was wiped away in the uh, crisis on Earth. Yeah, the crisis. Yeah, exactly. Earth, Earth Gary Marshall. Yeah, I think he (laughs) wiped him out. Yeah. (laughs) So then we cut to uh, Websco again, where we check in on our friend Gus Gorman. He is getting his paycheck once more, but this time he tells the clerk he should have another one. And uh, Gus is just a horrible liar, isn't he? I mean... (laughs) It's just he's he's so nervous, but we'll, he'll be a pretty he's good. Not comment. in this movie. Richard Pryor is not in this movie. <laughs> he's not. He's making a different movie. Oh, okay. I got you. I got you. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering where Gord was going with that as well. I was like, what? I've never felt that that Richard Pryor even understood he was in this film. It was like another production was shooting, went broke. And somebody went and bought up the footage and jammed it in here. It's an interesting take on it. I mean, I honestly, I mean, it does. I mean, these stories, I mean, they really do, you know, as we'll examine as we go along, but they really do run parallel for a long time before they ever intersect. I mean, we've had some connective tissue, obviously, and we're going to get it even more with with Ross, Ross Webster later in this in this segment. Uh, but yeah, that's, you know, yeah. And as you said, I guess Silver Street filmed in that, uh, in the same area. So yeah. So maybe, maybe you're onto something. So, uh, <laughs> can I just say what a terrible scam though this is? Because if you're going to embezzle money from the company, you don't do it via paychecks because that's easily trackable. You know, right. like you can't, you can't have somebody issue you an $86,000 paycheck because somebody in accounting is going to notice that. It's like, the whole idea would be you'd put the money in a computer, you know, via computer in an account, not via a paper check. So uh, this, this scam is is not. Uh, I mean, obviously, it doesn't have to work because uh, what's going to happen later on. But if it, as as a crook, Gus is not that good. Well, I worked for a, a farm cooperative that had computers very much like are in this building, and uh, they had auditors upon auditors upon auditors. You would never get. You would never get away with this. Absolutely never. And obviously he doesn't. Yeah, right. But even even the clerk that's handing the checks when he says, I should have another check for uh, uh, expenses. And the guy's like, what? Like that never happens. So, I mean, even that's a flag, mm-hmm. you know. So it's, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, this this is a really dumb plan. I mean, yeah. <laughs> what expenses? You sit on your ass in a room all day. You roll around on the chairs like everybody does in that office. I've never seen people in office chairs roll around that much. Maybe it's just me, but it's just, it's almost like a skating rink or something. I don't know. 
I don't think you could give Richard Pryor a chair and expect that thing to stay still. Well, that's true, too. Yeah. Of course, Gus even tries, you know, once he gets, he sees how much money is on the check, like almost $86,000. He, you know, starts making all sorts of nervous noises and waving, waving at people and smiling, even though nobody's paying attention to him. So he's just drawing attention to himself, actually. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's Richard Pryor doing Richard Pryor stuff. So it's, it's, it's fun, but yeah, it's, yeah, again, it it is it's it's part of this it is part of this movie, so <laughs> it's hard to believe he lost his job as a hostage negotiator. <laughs> we cut back to Smallville as Clark helps Lana clean up the high school gym from last night's reunion and they comically are having two conversations at the same time and are constantly tripping over each other's responses. And I guess they kinda tend to do that through the rest of the movie, but they they really are here. Like when Lana says, I don't know why I just feel like I can talk to you. And Clark says, what, you know? So, I mean, it's just, <laughs> but I, I never had to clean up after bashes like that. I have, and that is just the filthiest, most disgusting job. Oh, I, I bet. I yeah. Her on that one. <laughs> well, she couldn't even get Brad to stay, you know, Brad's always wanting to hover around Lana, but even, even he said no, so it must be pretty bad. So he's probably out of the parking lot throwing up or something. So I probably wouldn't need have one of them. This is where she refers to Metropolis as the big apricot. Yes, which is like I don't know. I always feel like that joke just lands with a thud. So I'm like you know, and I mean maybe it's that it it's meant to be not funny because it's so clumsy. Uh, but I don't know. It just it's like really the big app. Like really, that's what, <laughs> that's what it's called in this world. But okay, all right. That's that's uh, that. I don't know. Was it was it ever called that in the comics? I can't remember if it was ever called that in the comics or not. I don't I think can't so. imagine anyone ever tried to sell that the, the big apricot. I mean, come on. Yeah, hopefully not. So I, I noticed in the dialogue, apparently Lana's husband left her three years after they married, but little Ricky is ten at best. So. They must have dated a long time if they were a couple in high school. You know, he strung her along for a good long time before they finally got married. And then he didn't mm. stick around for very long either. So, uh, so what's your deal? Well, you were married has Walter Media Lana ever made a very good marital decision between Smallville and even the new Superman and Lois? She just uh, really seems to find the attract the low-hanging fruit of town. Yes, that's true. Yes, that uh, the the firefighter guy on Superman and Lois. Yeah. That's pro Morgan edge. Yes. <laughs> Throwing no shade on president Ross. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Good old Pete Ross. Where was Pete Ross in this film? That's what, you know, we needed to see that scene recreated of, you know, him waking up in the tent and seeing Clark change the Superboy, even though there's no Superboy in this continuity, but by God, if Pete Ross showed up in a comic book in the silver and bronze age, they had to show that scene. You know, you so. saw those mountains, Chris, He's out camping. Um, we did actually see a picture of Lana and her ex as prom king and queen. And I don't know. I mean, Lana, I guess, is one of the main organizers of this. So I guess she's okay. But doesn't that seem insensitive of here's you and your ex-husband. Let's hang a picture of you up on the wall to remind everybody that, you know, you're divorced. I don't know. That just <laughs> that seems just seems kind of, you know, I would think she could say, no, don't do that. But it just it seems kind of weird. You know, just, that didn't even occur to me, but yeah, that is kind of a weird. <laughs> There's got to be solo pictures of Lana Lang at this point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we do see one, you know, earlier. Yeah. Right, yeah, right. We saw it earlier. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and this ring that she says she had to pawn her ring. So do we think that's her? 
is that her wedding ring or engagement ring? What, you know, or is this like a personal, a personal ring? We don't, we don't, we're not told, but if it was her engagement ring and their marriage broke up, I don't know. I just don't know how to read that, you know? Maybe I'm I, o- trying to- I always took it as her that she had to sell her wedding ring. That's always how I took it. Oh, okay. Okay. I guess she wanted to keep the wedding ring even after the marriage dissolved, I guess. So I don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I've never been divorced, so I don't know how I would feel about that. So. <laughs> <laughs> I never get this trope of pawning or selling your wedding rings or engagement rings and such. You know, I want to see the finances. I'm just what you get out of this. You know, you see this in movies where, you know, people are paying off their houses and getting people out of jail, you know, by pawning a wedding ring. How how much do you really get out of a wedding ring? Must be some rock. I mean, if you're getting any kind of money out of it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of marriage, how about Clark's uh, answer to Lana's question? Uh, you never got married? <laughs> I love that line where a neat little reference to the previous two films, you mm-hmm. know, that he's like, okay, yeah, there there was something. I, I thought that was, an, again, this movie, it's it's so easy to forget that this that these series of movies really sticks a dagger in the heart of the Superman-Lois relationship, <laughs> you know? And then you're like, you really are kind of stuck with like, well, what to do with Superman and Lois Lane once you've done that? So, yeah. Well, it really is a weird idea that like Superman and Lois are not a couple anymore. That's not a thing. Is this back to direction again? You really lose the continuity from the past two movies story wise. I think. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of you know you you get the Clark. I, I do like the way though because he's like playing with the piano as he's talking. It's it's a really nice human. This scene's a really nice human scene in this movie that can be pretty silly. At times, you know, I mean, it's not deep. It's not like, you know, uh, you, you know, a, a, a tear jerking drama by any means. But there's a certain amount of grounded reality whenever it's just Clark and Lana talking, you know, in between all the, the super annex and super sneezes and, mm-hmm. you know, saving kids from, you know, uh, thrashers and things like combines and things like that, you know, as, as you pointed out, Gord. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's nice. I like it. And, uh, Yolanda looks at Clark's high school picture and refers to him as the one that got away while Clark plays Earth Angel on the piano. And, uh, that's a nice to know that Clark can actually play the piano. Piano. I think that's a pretty nice. Who knew? Who knew Clark can't knew how to play piano? <laughs> Would Superman be able to learn anything like that because of his ability? Because isn't learning, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to play a musical instrument, but isn't a lot of that is, some of it is innate talent, but some of it is just practice. And part of the reason we can't be as good at some things is because we just don't have the time. It's like that uh, Malcolm Gladwell thing. Like you you put 10,000 hours into something, then you become great at it. So it's like Superman, if he wanted to, could teach himself the piano. And could he then become a master pianist? Because he could just practice ad infinitum until he got really great? I mean, I again, has that ever been covered in a Superman comic? Well, according to Silver Age, he could do, you know, surgery. He could be in, he could be brain <laughs> surgery if he wanted. But, you know, I'm glad they get away from that in these movies. I mean, Superman should be good at being Superman, and Clark should be good at being Clark. And, you know, don't try to do anything else. Don't try to push it. Yeah, I mean, even even in the uh, post-crisis era, he came in in that jail uh, Justice League Europe issue and operated on Power Girl. So that was a little bit of a callback to those days when oh he could. Oh God, I remember that cover now. Yeah, do that stuff. Yeah, I think Shag's already covered that on on uh, the Bahaha podcast. So yeah. <laughs> so then we cut to the offices of Ross Webster, where his financial advisor Simpson 
is informing him of the missing $85,000 plus that he believes have been embezzled. Um, and I like the way that we transition to Ross because we show the picture that Jimmy took of him at this humanitarian award. And that was the photo we saw of him earlier in the film. And it's been almost a half an hour since then, at least 20, 25 minutes. So it's a nice way to say, oh, remember this guy we mentioned at the beginning of the movie? Well, here he is again. So I thought that was a nice, nice way to, uh, you know, because, you know, obviously Ross, spoiler warning, he's the villain of this film. It was a nice way to show him at the beginning. We're not, we can't get to him quite yet. But now we're going to use that same device that we introduced him with to reintroduce him here. So I thought that was actually pretty clever. Yeah, I thought that was a nice touch. Of course, uh, we mentioned Robert Vaughn before, but since we're seeing him in person, of course, he was the lead in the Man from Uncle series, playing Napoleon Solo. He had memorable, memorable roles in The Magnificent Seven, Bullet, The Towering Inferno. And he had a nice career later. Uh, he had a latter-day resurgence in his career on Law & Order, Special Victims Unit, and Hustle. Uh, he passed away in 2016. So, uh, you know, Robert Vaughn just, uh, he was just one of those guys that exuded smooth cool uh, in just about every role he was in. And he's pretty much doing that here, too. So he, you know, through his later years, he was sort of one of those familiar faces that just pops up. And you mentioned Hustle, and I'm glad you did. My uh, daughter just loves that. And I bought her the set here a few years ago. And of course, he's the only American actor in that, I believe. But when he comes on there, he just lands a little bit of an air of authenticity. He's sort of the more urbane fellow that you bring in when, you, when you're when you doing a con and you need somebody to do that, sort of a smooth role. Yeah, definitely. He is uh, he is good at that, that's for sure. Uh, his um, right-hand man, Simpson, here's advisor, is played by Robert Henderson, who was second editor in the first Superman film. Rob, I did not realize that until... Looking this up, and then I recognize him as being in like the scene where the uh, in Perry's office the day after Superman, the night after Superman's big debut, the the following day. Yeah, I my I was like, what? <laughs> I didn't realize. Uh, so that's the scene he's in. He's in the uh, you know, does he have a girlfriend scene? He's in that. Yep, he's in there? the bullpen or in, in Perry's office when all the staffs in there. Yes. Oh wow! All right, good for him. I had no idea. Yeah, when I when I saw that myself, I was like, "That's shocking," because I don't remember him in this uh, in that at all. But uh, yeah, good for him. Yeah, uh, he was also in Phase Four, which is like I guess this insects. Yeah, the movie. killer ant movie. <laughs> yeah. Who else was in that? That's in this movie. We that came up in one of our other episodes. I can't remember who it was. Oh but, shoot, I forget. Yeah, there is somebody else in Phase Four. That, I have. No, I've still never seen it. I want to. It's on my Amazon Prime list. I just haven't gotten around to it yet because I love a good killer ant movie. Yeah, we, yeah, cool. it's, yeah. <laughs> He's got some Canadian cred. He was one one of the Avon Lee movies. Avonlea being sort of a major industry uh, up in Canada. Yeah, Avonlea, Green Gables, all of that sort of arrangement. Oh yeah, yeah. See, my Cindy's big into Anna Green Gables and and all that. So yeah, okay, yeah. There was a there was a. I'm sure it was actually a Canadian production that ended up on the Disney Channel. But there was an Avonlea uh, series. Oh, yeah. yeah, back in the late '90s or so, early '90s or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was also in Ragtime. So yeah, he he has a pretty pretty good resume actually. So Ragtime comes up a lot in a lot of these actors because I think that movie was a huge production. Uh, it's like, you know, it's a three hour movie. It features hundreds of actors. Uh, and of course it was produced right around the same time as this. So I think that, 
just by the sheer you know, the sheer nature of its scope of a production, you have a lot of actors that were working end up being in ragtime. So I noticed as we were going through these uh, minutes, there's a lot of actors. That I'm going to say, oh yeah, he was in he was in ragtime. He was in ragtime. He was also in ragtime. There's another actor. Actually, that's a perfect uh, reference, Chris. If you don't mind, I'm going to wind back a little bit because there's another actor I want to talk about. Sure, go ahead. Which is the wages guy, the guy that hands Gus the check. Um, he's played by a guy named Bill Reinbold. Uh, he passed away in 2014. He is in Ragtime. Uh, <laughs> he was also in Richard Donner's The Omen. Uh, he was in Water with Valerie Perrine. He was in The Fifth Element. He died in 2014. His other credit that was that's baffling to me, he is credited as bureaucrat in Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I cannot figure out who that is. Hmm. I don't know who the bureaucrat is because the only two government guys in that movie I can think of are the two guys you know, that, that come to talk to Indy and, and Marcus. And that's not one of that. Bill Reinbold's not one of those guys. So no. I don't know who he is in that movie, but he's in, he's credited as Raider, as bureaucrat in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Cause one of the, the two guys, one of them's, uh, one of them's Porkins. Yeah. And the other guy's the general the, the, that the general Raider, from Superman too. Yeah. It was, yeah, he, well, he's the, uh, the newscaster and he was the general in, um, Star Wars that Vader chokes, right? That's the two guys that come. Isn't that the two guys that come to see Indy and Raiders? No, no, the guy, the guy who comes to visit, uh, obviously, other than William Hootkins, yeah. Porkins and, and uh, Bullock and everything. that. The other guy is the general from Superman Two. Oh, he's the one. Right. You know, I answer only to the president, and he yeah. will answer to me. That's that yeah. guy. Yeah. Okay, I was getting my my generals were getting. I was getting mixed up in my head. Okay, right. I remembered Hootkins, but I was. I think I was dropping in. Uh, the general from his role in Who Framed Roger Rabbit from around the same time period in the same clothes mm-hmm, into, mm-hmm. into into Indy, sorry. <laughs> yeah, so anybody out there, if you know who the bureaucrat is in Riddles of the Lost Ark, leave a comment on our website, findwaterpodcast.com, because I'm dying to find out where he is in this movie. He's <laughs> not one of the top men. Yeah, but I mean, we never see the top men. So, I mean, like, who, you know, who is he? I don't know. It's really fascinating to me. Maybe he was cut. Is he rolling the cart to... Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, you know what? Well, would he be? Would that be a bureaucrat though? I mean, that a bureaucrat is a guy that we're so far off Superman three. I apologize, everybody. (laughs) But like a bureaucrat is like a government like paper pusher. I don't know. Would that be the guy that's like the guy man in the cart? I don't know. (laughs) It feels like that would be a different role. But I don't know. I I guess I'll have to sit through Red as a Lost Ark again. Darn. Dang, man. Yeah. By the way, am I the only one who thinks that Ross Webster's place looks a lot like Max Shrek's from Batman Returns? Oh, <laughs> kind of does, yeah. It's all this silver and black Art Deco stuff. I'm like, I feel like that once Ross went to jail and he wasn't using it anymore, he uh, he uh, sublet it out to Max Shrek. So you just see Max Shrek. Gotham is going to run out of power in <laughs> exactly. 20 years. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Uh, Michael Keaton will come in and throw a file at him across the desk, right? Uh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and frankly, any revolving bar that doesn't lead to a secret staircase is just a complete waste of time. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, we see his sister Vera stomps in, and uh, Rob, you have found out something about uh, Vera that I don't think we knew before. You want to drop that on us? Yeah, this is, of course, Annie Ross, uh, much like we saw with Ross Webster. She's introduced via a photo. She passed away just last year uh, at the age of 90, uh, bless her heart, 90 years old. is fantastic. She was in movies like uh, Shortcuts and The Player, both for Robert Altman. By the way, in both those movies, she is credited as Annie Ross. Uh, apparently she was also a singer 
And uh, she fronted like a jazz quartet. And she apparently, I've seen both those movies. I don't remember her in those films, but she's credited as Annie Ross. So she must be in scenes in those movies where she is fronting her band and she's essentially playing herself. She was also in movies like Throw Mama from the Train. She was in a movie called Funny Money with Robert Henderson. So she worked with the same actor uh, in another movie. Uh, and then she also did a lot of dubbing work. And this was the detail that Chris was referring to. I was shocked that she dubbed Britt Eklund in The Wicker Man, which is interesting, and more uh, closely affiliated with what we're talking about, Sarah Douglas in Superman 2, which is shocking. I had no idea that there was – I mean, there's obviously a lot of that movie has been 80-yard. But I always assumed that it was Sarah Douglas doing her own voice work. But I guess maybe there was – some some bits and pieces they couldn't get her back for. So apparently Annie Ross is in some parts of Superman 2 playing Ursa, which is, that's extraordinary. I never knew that. Wow. That, that is, that's, uh, it makes you wonder, is that how she ended up in this film? You know, yeah. I mean, you know, working for Richard Lester, you know, uh, yeah, I, I had no idea. Not everybody got fired by the cell kinds from Superman 2. Oh, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's kind of funny because I, I always thought, I always heard Sarah Douglas was like one of the few stars of Superman 2 that was really into going out and doing publicity because she kind of wasn't as, she the way she kind of puts it, she was kind of unaware of, of kind of all the tension between the whole Donner-Lester changeover uh, that put a bad taste in a lot of the stars' mouths, so they didn't promote it as much as they pro- probably would have otherwise. And so it's kind of weird that she wouldn't come back and and do her own dubbing. Uh, but you know, obviously she didn't or didn't do some of it. So it could have been like a scheduling thing, not that she wouldn't do it, but it could have yeah. just been she was off doing something else and it was like, look, we're, we're, you know, we can't fly. Maybe she's on the other side of the world doing another movie. Like we can't fly all the way to Los Angeles to do five lines. So let's get somebody who can get it close. But I'd love to know what, I mean, you and I know Chris, like every line of Ursa's in Superman too, because like she, we, we really kind of rediscovered her in that movie as we were Mm -hmm. going through it. And so I would love to know what famous lines of Ursa's is actually Annie Ross. That would be fascinating to find out. I mean, what if she said Superman, you know? <laughs> oh, that would break, that would break my heart. <laughs> I can't live with that. Uh, I like how Simpson is complaining about old fashioned crime. I, you know, you know, you know, we used to, people would come in with a gun, you know, and, and <laughs> point it at you if they wanted to rob you. And, and Ross tells him, you are yesterday and whoever pulled this off is tomorrow. But really, Gus is just a buffoon with mutant computer power. So, uh, <laughs> but they don't I, know that. I, to be honest, I have the same reaction when I hear about those NFTs that people are selling and making tens of millions off of. I'm just, I have that same kind of like, why can't people just be shady in more recognizable ways? <laughs> like, I just I have the same, same exact reaction as Henderson. <laughs> On the computers, you know, just to lead into something that happened to me when I tried to actually watch Superman 3 in the cinema. I think I got about two or three people. I was with a young lady. We got about two or three people away from the box office. It was only on one screen. And, of course, uh, it was sort of the weekend of the debut. And, bam, I got shut off. So I had to. we had to walk around to the other box office. We're going to see a movie, but it's just not going to be Superman 3. 
and the one in the other cinema was War Games. <laughs> which I have to say, I, I enjoyed more than Superman 3 anyway. But at any rate, those were just two examples of what you saw in, uh, in movies on TV at that time as to how computers work. You know, nobody really knew how computers work. You know, apparently you can sit in your bedroom and call in a nuclear strike by playing tic-tac-toe. <laughs> right. Well, a few things you got from Radio Shack. Yeah. You know, nobody's got a home computer at that point in time. Well, computers are magic. They're, they're, they're wizardry. Yeah, it's definitely, there was like this alchemy. This, yeah, they, you could definitely pull uh, the wool over, you know, people's eyes to a point back then. It just And I'm, I, I'm not even sure anybody on, they probably didn't even have any kind of like, I wonder if they did have some kind of computer consultant on this film. I, I kind of doubt it. If they did, I don't think they listened to them. You know, because <laughs> it's not not like the <laughs> computers like that. You know, even like eight years later, you know, we were still trying to look up books in the library on that same sort of arrangement. Yeah, yeah. I remember when I first took a computer course in college. It didn't even have a screen. You just typed out a keyboard. And out come that great big sheets of paper that were about six feet long. You know, there was some little mouse inside doing something, and you had no clue. There wasn't even a screen. Yeah, but yet uh, uh, Gus has got, uh, he's got a little stylus that he can just go, you know, a touch screen that he can magically do stuff on. And I don't really know if those even existed in 1983. So Lorelai, of course, we remember Lorelai from the opening of the movie. Uh, she busts in, and Vera is fuming because she's there. And Ross introduces her to Simpson as his psychic nutritionist. <laughs> now, that's the job title. I, I'm not really sure what that means, but uh, okay. You know you're eating too much salt? Why Why does his sister seem so jealous of his of her brother's sexual relationship with somebody? Or does she Or does she think that, that Lorelai is taking him for a ride or something? Is that really what it is? That she feels that, I mean, you, have, you, you know, give one look at Lorelai and you know why she's there. Right, right, yeah. I don't know. Maybe it is that whole, I don't think there's like some weird, like, incestual thing going on but i think there might be some weird you're breaking up our family because she refers to her grown brother as bubba you know so you know I, you get this impression that they've been joined at the hip their whole lives and you know maybe he feels she feels like she's gold digging in on him or something i don't yeah that could be part of it i don't well, know the, the sister feels like you know i've done everything with my brains and you've walked in here and basically unbutton your blouse and getting away with the same thing that's true, too. Of course, we'll learn later that she's a little smarter than she lets on. But, uh, uh, yeah, that's uh, – yeah, it's – it's you know, she even says, uh, you know, she's she's about to take a human life and goes to choke her in a very, you know, very over-the-top, you know, uh, reaction to her coming in, which is – you get the impression that this is the way these two always interact because the way Ross uh, shuts them down by saying, you know, I, I can't have anybody with me that's not, that isn't with me. Uh, which, you know, he's, you know, only Robert Vaughn could deliver a line like that and have it actually make any sense. So, uh, <laughs> but <laughs> it, uh, you know, he, he exudes that snooty, uh, superior, uh, suave charm that he's got and it, uh, he pulls it off. I have to say, as I was watching this, like I, like they were so big, like they're so at 11, that I was like, oh man, this is just this is part of the reason why I, I'm just not a fan of this movie as much because this is just so over the 
over the top and cartoony. And then I sort of re- went back and I was like, well, Ned Beatty's not exactly that subtle either. Uh, it's just sort of the way it's done. I don't know. I just feel like it's, it's, there's some sort of intangible thing uh, that it, it's like, yeah, when, when Ned Beatty and Valerie Perrine are, are hamming it up with Gene Hackman, to me, that's funny and it works. And then I see this and I just feel like, ah, we're, you guys are all just way too big. But again, I don't, I can't even necessarily, I can't, point to something and say why this version to me doesn't work while that other one does again because it's not again not like otis is a subtle character uh <laughs> but uh i don't know there's just, when, when she does that i'm about to kill somebody i'm like wow that's like a take out of the batman tv show that's like such a big take well it's like i can't even remember the name of the character on uh austin powers the uh dr evil's assistant uh, maybe you guys can remember oh right like yeah like the german lady yeah yeah yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Either, yeah. Yeah, Frau, whatever her name was. Yeah. 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 And yeah, you know, it's kind of like the difference between Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. They're essentially the, <laughs> they're essentially the same movie, but it's like one has moments of uh you kind of like okay, you guys went too far and but then the next one's like wow, you guys did the exact same thing but for some reason it's way too far now. You I know. Guess, yeah, I guess so. That's a great comparison, Chris. Yeah. Because right, the elements the elements that I don't like about Batman and Robin are in Batman Forever, but like there's other stuff that's cool and it kind of just hangs on. And then in in, in Batman and Robin, it just goes completely off the rails. And like that's a yeah, I'm just like because and I like Pamela Stevenson as Lorelai. Like as you said, we we're gonna learn more about her that this whole thing is an act, which I like. I like that whole bit. But yeah, this this initial thing, they just seem they seem so cartoony. That oh you know what okay now now that I'm sitting here and we're sort of talking extemporaneously about it when we first see Lex Luthor and again I'm sorry I don't want to keep dragging this movie compared to the previous movies but like when we first see Lex Luthor he's committing a murder he kills yeah. a cop in a pretty gruesome way in a in a in a, in a um, premeditated slow burn vicious kind of way so that sets the tone that this guy is not somebody you f with even though he surrounds himself with nincompoops. But here, our first meeting of Ross Webster, basically, is him surrounded by these two kind of doofuses. And to me, it's like it undercuts him as a threat to Superman. Because you're like, this guy? Like, really? This guy's going to be the big bad? Now, of course, we'll learn that he's got much more ambition. But it's like, I introducing the villains as cartoony characters right off the bat, just doesn't seem like screenwriting wise the best way to go about it. Yeah. And I, I don't think in through the movie we'll get there, but there's never a moment where, where Ross Webster actually comes across as, as truly sinister. I mean, he's doing some bad stuff and he's definitely just out for himself and doesn't give a damn what it does to anybody, obviously, but he doesn't have that, that sick menace that, right. That Hackman's Luthor has that, you know, this guy is really, just, you know, really unbalanced, you know, and you don't, you, you know, you don't know what he's going to do. You know, you don't know if he's going to kill a cop. He's going to, you know, break into a museum in Addis Ababa and, and, and kill somebody and to steal a meteor, you know, I mean, things like that, even though that's off screen, you just, and then, you know, try to sink California and nuke New Jersey. Uh, but, but, but uh, I, I've wanted to do that sometimes myself. So. <laughs> But yeah, so you never, we never get there with him. I mean, that's, that's true. I mean, there's just that, um, yeah, well, that's I think good... the problems here is it's not a pr- problem with Robert Vaughn. I mean, good God, you got Napoleon Solo. 
But, you know, the whole character of Ross Weber, Webster is a salvage job after Hackman has left. You know, th this is intended to be Luther and Hackman, after which point, you know, if you had the right director, this would probably be a better movie. But, you know, when you've decided that Richard Pryor is going to be your co-conspirator, you know, what have you have left? And, you know, it, it, like I said, it's a salvage job. And then uh, a man that wants to turn the entire thing into a comic opera. You know, he wants to turn, you know, what it was, was a, a superheroic story with some comic undertones. And he basically, he's flipped the script. You've got an entirely slapstick comedy with some superheroics in it. And I think, you know, it's only the junkyard scene that really, for lack of a better term, pun intended, salvages, you know, the entire film. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I I see your point there, yeah. But keep listening to the show, everybody. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> there's there's all the Clark Lana scenes, which are also good, so. <laughs> Sorry, I'm doing the edit thing. I don't know when I'm supposed to stop. <laughs> Well, I think we can wrap this one up uh, on that note. What do you think, guys? Got any final, any other final thoughts, or are we good? I, I have one more thing, and I'll try not to do another spoiler, but it is uh, a little bit of a zoom ahead to the picnic site. Okay. Uh, you'll see some, a town and some grain elevators off in the background of that picnic. That's a little town not far from High River. In fact, it's on the road to Vulcan uh, called Blackie. And that town is not very far away from where the original Kent farm was, uh, was shot, where Glenn Ford died in the road. And um, another interesting factoid is a friend of mine actually researched this. The town of Blackie, according to the Lethbridge Herald in 1927, was the first use in the world of the, of the terms trick-or-treat, because it all comes back to the House of Franklinstein. <laughs> Well, thank you, Gord. I appreciate it. Gord is a plug machine, man. <laughs> you are, man. <laughs> we should put him in charge of our PR department. <laughs> we, we we should put somebody in charge of that department. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, we should. We should have a department. Uh, <laughs> well, Daily keeps depressing everyone. So, no, uh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, uh, well, thank you, Gord, for joining us for these minutes and 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 thank really you. dropping the knowledge. It's it's been fantastic. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. And uh, you know where to find me, Prairie Justice, the Greg Saunders Vigilante Podcast. We're in episode six, which means I now have three times as many episodes as I do promos. Yeah, you guys. I mean, you are. Man, you are doing some work on that show. I mean, you do all the voices, and I mean, it's. It, I mean, it is. It, it is a radio drama and a podcast and a, a, a history of the comics and the areas and the, that the comics are supposed to be taking place in. I mean, I am in music and I mean, you are really just, uh, I mean, I learned so much stuff just from listening to like one episode. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun guys. I can't recommend it enough. Well, part of it comes that I'm a, I'm a really poor critic. I can't criticize a comic book story unless it's really, really awful. And, uh, I love the golden age. I love golden age stories. I learned to read on these. And to me, they're just, you know, such a primitive time. And it takes you back to also the, you know, the, this, where we were at that point in time in history in World War II. And um, I'm finding a Mort Weisinger that wasn't quite as big an asshole as he would be later on in the, in his life. <laughs> Don't say another word, Gord. Let your appearance end with that sentence. I think we really okay. <laughs> 
I, I've spoiled it again. Yeah, you just did it. Don't score. Stop talking. You already finished it. And you're, you came up with the perfect exit line. We're going to cut that out. <laughs> he put his neckerchief back up over his over his mouth. Uh, dare I say? Dare I say the vigilante podcast by Gord is good stuff. Oh, good stuff. Good. Stuff. There we go. That's out one after two. That's right. <laughs> well, if you want to check out shows on our network, you can at firewaterpodcast.com. There's lots of shows Rob and I do. Uh, we'd love to read your comments over there on Superman 3. Uh, so you can go to, uh, as I said, firewaterpodcast.com and leave us a comment. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you'd like. Special thanks to all our patrons uh, of the network. If you would like to support the network financially, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcast. There you can find many ways you can help keep the network going, including support levels that get you a special shout-out on the show of your choice, like Superman's pal, Henry Bernstein, who supports Superman 3 Movie Minute. So thank you, Henry. Yay! Thanks, Henry. Yay! So join our never-ending battle here next week on Superman 3 Movie Minute uh, as we continue our coverage of Superman 3. Bye. Giorgio, per favore. E grazie.